Thanks. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. We're going to read there together, Matthew, chapter 2. Christmas Eve services are on the 24th this year. That's my little joke always. It's always on the 24th, if you didn't know that. And we're having services at 2, 4, or 6 o'clock. And they're online as well as in person. We'll do every other row seating uh, Christmas Eve, um, like we're doing on Sunday morning as well. And you can watch online. And if you're online, we'll take communion. Some, in fact, some people are picking up communion packets this afternoon so they can take it at the same time uh, people here do. And it'll be just, it's always a special time for us. Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 2. We looked last week at kind of the beginning of this story. And now this second part, one of the uh, first graders in our academy said to her mom last week when I was talking about Christmas, she said, uh, Mom, she said, my teacher already settled all of this for us. And maybe you feel that way as well. You've already, everything's already settled, but there's still more to the Christmas story. Let's read Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Well, let's note some lessons of Christmas. In fact, 10 of them, 10 of them. If you have enough ink in your pen, you're going to want to write these 10 principles. If you're following online, I'm just going to encourage you to write these principles down. And, and if you're here in person, write these down on the worship on your worship notes. I'm going to say worship is, and then 10 principles about worship. Really, this is um, a story about worship. The wise men came to worship the king. Uh, Herod talks about false worship, and then they do worship the Lord. I'm going to talk about 10 lessons we learn about worship from this uh, wonderful passage. Number one, worship is worthy of sacrifice. We just write that in. Worship is worthy of sacrifice. The Bible says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. And they're not just next door. This isn't just like eastern side. This is a long journey. And they, they say, we, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. So they're going to travel a long distance in difficult ways, camels or however, the, however they would have traveled, hot, cold, deprivation, sacrifice, because they believed it was worth their sacrifice. Now, this sounds so odd in comparison to much of the, what I'll call casual Christianity of the Western world. There are people 
in parts of the world this day who are sacrificing greatly for the cause of Christ, people who are worshiping in communist countries or difficult places in the Middle East who are worshiping under circumstances that are difficult, but they're doing it because they believe it to be worth their time, their effort, and even their sacrifice. And yet, may I say respectfully, for many who name the name of Christ in the Western world, watching an hour on a, online is just too much trouble or attending a worship service, too big a thing. They dare not get out if it is a chance of sprinkling or if it bothers their normal schedule in any way or if they stayed up too late the night before gaming. May I say respectfully, that does not resonate with Christians who are sacrificing for the cause of Christ this very day in hard places in our world. It would be very difficult for the wise men to understand the mentality for those of us who name the name of Christ when they have traveled so far under such difficult circumstances with so many dangers and problems, but they did so because they believed the Lord is worthy of sacrifice. Sacrifice is in the pages of the Bible. It's in God's Word. Sacrifice is something we ought not scratch out of our Christian vocabulary. The Lord calls us to sacrifice. The Lord Jesus himself sacrificed for us. He calls us to a life of sacrifice. We do this because he is worthy of our sacrifice. There's a second principle I'd like you to write down. Would you write this down? Worship is intriguing to seekers. It's intriguing to seekers. So there's a sense in which none of us are seekers. The Lord seeks us before we can seek him, of course. But there are some who are looking. There's something missing. And perhaps these wise men, we're not told a great deal about them, but there is something missing in their lives. They have some degree of wealth. They have some degree of power. They have education and knowledge. And yet, there's something missing so that they are willing to travel. They say, we, have, we saw his star, his rising, have come to worship him. They are looking for something still. There are many in our world who are they have everything the world says you need. I mean, they have money, they have position, they have fame, they have popularity, they, everything, whatever it is you've said, that's what, boy, if I had that, I'd be happy, and they're still missing something, and they're still searching, still searching. There's something, there's got to be something more. God made us, created us to worship, and if we don't worship Him, we find ourselves worshiping something else. We make a, an idol out of something, entertainment or money or something. But there is a witness to our worship. I've invited many people along the way to church services, as you can imagine. And, and, and I do that partly because I know there is a witness to our worship. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. Some of you are here because of this. Some of you are... Uh, considering faith even, I've heard something like this many times. I didn't know what I was, I mean, I didn't know what I was missing. You know, quite frankly, if you don't know Christ to save you, you can't even really, you can't worship him. But they said, those people, those people had something I didn't have. There was something there I needed. I didn't know, I didn't know how to explain it. I didn't understand it fully, but there was something there that they had that I didn't have, something that I needed. And our worship is a witness 
to the Lord himself, to the God who changes our lives and our perspectives and our attitudes and our actions. And there's an intrigue in the world because the world is looking for something to worship and chasing so many things. And when they see this genuineness, I mean, when you've, when you've chased the counterfeits over and over, there's something about the power of genuine worship. There's a power to that. And these wise men were looking for something, seeking something. And so they came all this way because they wanted to worship. There was a desire in their heart. Number three, worship is disturbing to complacency. It's disturbing to complacency. Verse three says, when King Herod heard this, King Herod was the wicked ruler of the day under the authority of the government of Rome. He, when he heard about a king, he didn't like that very much. He was in charge. The Bible says he was deeply disturbed. Verse 3 says, deeply disturbed. Not just a little bit, deeply. And then it says, and all Jerusalem with him. So the, the king, Herod, was disturbed because he thought someone's going to take my place. Someone's going to take my fame. Someone's going to take my position or my power. And he didn't like that very much. I wonder if the people of Jerusalem just were complacent. They said, you know, we don't want someone changing things here. We kind of like it like it is. We've got some prosperity. The government of Rome brings us peace. I mean, sure, we give up some things. I mean, we lose some freedom, but they give us peace. They give us safety. After all, isn't that the most important thing in all of human history is safety? I mean, isn't that what matters more than anything in all of they get, Here's somebody coming to disturb our safety. We, safety's the most important thing in all of we don't want someone messing things up. We like things as they are. Listen, can I just tell you something? The Lord, He's not going to just leave you where you are. He's not going to be, he's not going to be satisfied to leave you in complacency. And can I tell you this? I want you, and I want you to hear me carefully. The Lord's goal for your life is not your comfort, and it is not your ease, and it is not your earthly safety. That's not His goal for your life. And so if you're saying, you know what I want most in life is just to be comfortable. Christianity's not for you. If all I want in life is just to be ease, you know, just to make, just kind of live. No waves, no problems, no difficulties, no struggles, no sacrifice, no. And man, I'm telling you, you're in the wrong place this day. Because the Lord has a tendency to bring discomfort to our lives for a, a greater good. And he shook things up in Jerusalem. And they didn't stay the same. And sometimes just following the Lord can bring its own problems. Can I tell you that? Its own difficulties. I mean, there are some of you who you have family members who do not understand what it means to be committed to the Lord and who would stand against it. The culture is not really very happy or pleased that you're following. If you decide to follow the Lord, that's not, you're not going to be like at the top of the cultural, you know, this is, this is what makes you culturally important. But the Lord wants something better for you. One of the good things that can come from these difficult days, I'll enjoy it. This has been a hard, weird year, and I haven't, there are a lot of things about it I don't enjoy too much. But there's one good thing that could come from a pandemic or from a year like this. And that is the Lord can disturb our complacency and help us to see what really matters and what really counts. And that there are some things more important than Life itself, comfort or ease, money or things, 
And maybe God would use this in our lives to remind us of those things that matter most. You don't like it when you're facing problems, and I get that. None of us ever pray for problems. We don't pray, God, we'd like to have more problems. But God often uses problems in our lives to help us to see what matters most and to, and to get our perspective as it ought to be. You don't like the economic difficulty you're going through right now. You don't want that in your life, of course. But God might use that in your life as a means of helping you to see what really is valuable. You don't like this medical struggle you're going through. That's not something you enjoy when you go through some sort of medical difficulty. But God sometimes gives you a new perspective through that of what it means to really live. Sometimes God uses our problems. Maybe you're going through some relationship problems. Maybe there's some grief in your life. Maybe there's some pain or hurt. God would use use that in your life if you'd allow him to. God would use that for good in your life to show you what counts most and what matters most. most. And worship has a way of disturbing our complacency. And God has a, a, a way of getting down to the depths of our heart and showing us what really matters. And he's, he loves us too much to leave us as we are. So sometimes God disturbs our complacency and worship is a means by which he shows us what he wants us to do. He wants our holiness. He wants our godliness. And he doesn't just leave us satisfied with the things of this world or complacent in the face of the needs that he puts before us. There's a fourth principle I'd like you to note about worship. Worship is based on scripture. So in verse four, the Bible tells us Herod, this wicked king, now he's wicked, but he knows something about the Bible, and he knows there must be something in there about the Messiah. And so he calls the chief priests and the scribes. And they're religious, by the way, very religious, though they don't, uh, many of them will not recognize God incarnate. God, when he becomes a man, they won't know him, but they're religious. And they say, Where, uh, where's the Messiah going to be born? And they say, in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, because that's what's written by the prophet. And they quote from Micah, and you, Bethlehem, least among the rulers or not least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And the, the Bible is always pointing us to worship, and worship is always pointing us to the Bible. Scripture is always pointing us to worship, and worship's always pointing us to Scripture. God wants us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He gives us a great deal of instruction about worship. The Psalms are songs of worship. All of those psalms, 150 of them, they're songs of worship. We don't have the music, we have the, the words, the lyrics. And we put those lyrics, every generation, every culture puts them in their own melody, but we have the truth of God's Word. God is always driving us to His Word. Some of you have heard me say this year, uh, on many occasions, I've encouraged you to read the New Testament for yourself. If you've not done that yet, I want you to read the New Testament for yourself. It's very doable, very doable. And if you'll read the New Testament for yourself, I'd like you to do it many times. Really get to know the truth of God's Word and what He has for you. God will use that to lead you to worship, and that worship uh, will lead you to Scripture. Eventually, read the entire Bible. We'll help you in other ways. We'll have life groups, small group Bible studies where you study God's Word and begin to learn more about it. We'll teach God's Word on worship services. We'll sing God's Word together. Many of the songs we sing, they're all about the things of God. Some of them directly quotes from Scripture itself. And we'll open God's Word together as we study what God has to say. And we want to, we want to find out what the truth is because we worship God in spirit and in truth. We want to worship Him. Worship always leads us to Scripture as Scripture leads us to worship. Uh, principle number five, worship is contrary to evil. It's contrary to evil. 
Verse 7 and 8 tell us more about King Herod. It says he secretly summoned the wise men, asked them what time the star appeared. He wanted to know. He sent them to Bethlehem. He said, you give me a report. Bring it back to me so I can worship him. Now, he didn't want to worship. His was false worship. His was fake worship. He pretended to worship. It's a very common thing. He used worship. But he was a wicked man. He would use this as a means of destroying all the innocent babies there in that region. It's not unlike our own culture that destroys the innocents. And so the Bible reminds us that genuine worship is always contrary to evil. It's always contrary to evil. God wants what's good. He wants what's right. He wants what's true. He wants what's best. It's why sometimes he, dis- he disturbs our complacency because he's never willing to leave us in spiritual complacency that keeps us from his best. It's so easy for us to drift away from the things of God. So God's always calling us to good. He's always calling us to holiness. Did you know God wants you to live a holy life? He wants you to do the right things. The Christian faith ultimately is about faith in the Lord Jesus from deep within, but it leads to actions and attitudes on the outside that are holy. God wants us to do the right things on the outside. And so he leads us to holiness. He leads us to a holy life, to good and to right and the best. Principle number six, worship is pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus. So let's go to verse nine. The Bible says, after hearing the king, they, the um, wise men, went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen as it's rising. And it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And this is some sort of miraculous event that's leading them to exactly where the child is, who is, by the way, in a, at a house. It's not in the manger scene here. You don't have to go home and change your nativity sets, but I'm just saying this is sometime later because they're at the house now. And they, it, the star leads them right exactly to Jesus himself. Because worship always is pointing us to Jesus. It's always pointing us to Jesus. So that means it's not pointing us to feelings. I like feelings. I mean, I like good feelings. I don't really like bad feelings, but feelings are things. God gives us feelings. The feelings are not the critical part of worship. Did you know that? Jesus is the critical part of worship. It's not tradition. Our worship is not based on tradition. Tradition is kind of a natural thing in life. We're neutral on tradition. It's neither good nor bad in itself. It's It's just what we've typically done. But we begin to think that worship, that worship is really just tradition. So I have things I like or prefer or grew up with or know. or And we lose sight. Right, a, a strong tradition is pointing us to Jesus, but tradition for itself, we can end up worshiping, worshiping tradition instead of Jesus. Even in Christmas. Worship is not about religion. I mean, religion, rightly understood, is our response to our faith in the Lord Jesus. But for many, religion becomes a replacement for faith in the Lord Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees, the the Sadducees and chief priests, many of them who were super religious, very religious, but when Jesus came, they didn't know him because they had religion, but they didn't have a relationship. Worship is not about religion. It's about Jesus. He leads us to acts that we call religious acts, but don't ever replace that with just religion. And 
Worship is not about ourselves. It's never pointing to ourselves. Worship is never about you. Worship is never about you. It's about Jesus. It's about him. And so if we're not careful, we can find ourselves almost worshiping ourselves, what we want, what we like, what we think, what we hope, what we wish, what we enjoy, what we are used to, and we forget about the real source of worship, which is Jesus. And worship is always pointing us to him. It's always pointing us to him. And beware this Christmas season that you find yourself just pointing to the traditions and losing sight of the Savior himself. There's a seventh principle. Would you write this down? Don't run out of ink. Stay with number seven. Worship is joyful in nature. Verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. I like that. Overwhelmed with joy. It's not just a little bit of joy. I mean, this is like overwhelming to them. Do you think they never had a problem? That's why they had joy? Had they never known what grief was like? Had they never known pain? Had they never had brokenness or heartache? No, they had all those things. But Jesus brought joy. Deep inside there's this joy, even though they face, they lived in a broken world too, just like you do. They knew what it was like to sin, to mess up. They knew what it was like to grieve the loss of someone they cared about. They knew what it was like to have a broken relationship and a broken heart that went with it. They knew what it was like to face problems and struggles and difficulties, but there was joy because worship always has this underlying theme of joy. Some of you are facing, you know, Christmas season can be a difficult time for people. One of my uh, pastor friends has a, Christmas is always hard for him in many ways. When he was young, one of his parents passed away when he was a young man uh, on the day before Christmas, on the 24th, passed away. And then some years later, the other parent died on the 26th, the day after Christmas. And so Christmas season is a time that, re- that he just remembers all the pain that has come. Some, there are many of you who understand that. And you've gone through some pain or some hurt in your life and brokenness at Christmas. It does not remove for my friend nor for you the underlying theme of joy that comes with Jesus. We're not ignoring the brokenness. We just are remembering the one who heals that brokenness. We're not ignoring the hurt. We just remember the one who heals the hurt. It's not that we are unaware of grief, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And so this this aspect of worship even though we're sometimes singing about somber things or sometimes in our reading we're reading about painful moments or sometimes in our spirit and prayer we're facing difficult situations, we remember with joy that he is the great physician and he is the one who is worthy of our worship and we remember what he has done on our behalf and though he died for us, he rose from the grave and though he left us, he's coming again. And we remember because of what he's done for us, where we remember this joy. And if we're not careful when we worship, we find ourselves like the wise men, overwhelmed with joy. There's an eighth principle I'd like you to write down. Would you write this? Worship is humbling in attitude. It's humbling in attitude. Let's go to verse 11. The Bible says, then they um, entered the house. There it is again. This is not the manger scene itself. And they saw the child with Mary's mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Now, there's something about their posture here that I want you to note. Falling to their knees, they worshiped him. They don't 
They don't come in filled with pride. You know, we don't even know what humility, the word humility has been lost in our society. I heard, I was listening on the radio, it was like a sports guy saying, he said he got some award. He said, I was so humbled by it and proud of it. And I thought, he doesn't, he doesn't even see the, the disconnect there. He doesn't, because we almost act as though humility, I mean, it's just a word we say. We're humbled by an award. We're probably not humbled by the award. We're probably humbled when we don't get the award more than when we get it, right? But we just say that because it sounds good. And we come to worship if we're not careful with the spirit of pride, no matter, even if we're singing about humility, if we're singing about Jesus, but if we're not careful, we make it about us. These wise men didn't walk in and say, hey, listen, Mary, look, we're here. Jesus, hey, baby Jesus, I don't know, don't know if you notice this, but look what all we did for you. They, they dropped to their knees in worship. That's something about that posture. Sometimes when you're at home worshiping the Lord in the quiet of your devotional time, there's this times when you got to get on your knees just to remind yourself physically of that spiritual truth. Just to remind yourself that He is King and you are not, that He is Lord and you aren't. And they humbled themselves and they knelt before Him and they were acknowledging that He is the King and He is the Lord and that's what worship does. It's not genuine worship unless... We are humbling ourselves before him and worshiping him. Principle number nine, worship is giving in spirit. Verse 11 says, then they opened their treasures. They were their treasures. It wasn't someone else's treasure. It was their treasures. And they presented him with gifts. They gave them gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's one of the reasons we give gifts at Christmas time now, because it's really an act of our worship and response to these wise men. They gave gold. After all, he's the king of kings. They gave frankincense. Incense was used in the temple worship. It reminds us that Jesus is our high priest. We, go, we don't have to go through anyone else. We go directly to God through the Lord Jesus himself. His death on our behalf is the means by which sinful people like us can come into the presence of holy and perfect God. And myrrh. Myrrh was used for embalming. It reminds us, of course, that Jesus was coming not only to live for us, but to die for us. It was used to anoint the prophets. Jesus is our prophet and priest and king. And we are thankful for these gifts that remind us of that. Giving is an important part of my own life. I am a saver. I'm not, I've never been a spender. All of my life I've been a saver. It's just been my nature. It's been advantageous in some ways. But there's a danger. Whether you're a spender or a saver in life, some of you have never, you've never found a sale that you didn't want to participate in. But I'm just, you know, I'm just different that way. But either way, materialism, which says my value is what I have, whether it's the money or the things, the antidote for that in my life is giving. So my giving to my church every week is an act of my worship. It's not just like a responsibility. I mean, it is a responsibility, but it's not just that. It's not just obedience. It's obedience, but it's not just that. It's, for me, it's an act of worship, and my a heart that can so easily be captured by the cultural world that says you're valued by what you have, things are the most important thing, what you hold, what you have. Giving is the response, and it's a response to our worship. The Lord has given to us. That's what he does. We give as a response to him. Principle number 10, worship is sending in purpose. The Bible says they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, and they returned to their own country by another route. Would you just note that the, the wise men did not stay in that house with Jesus? They didn't stay there. 
Now, we, we are glad they came. We learned a lot. But they didn't stay there. They were sent back to their own country and all the responsibilities that came with that. And we're glad we can gather to worship, whether we're doing it online or in person. We're thankful for it. But we don't stay here. We make you go home. If you brought children, we sure enough make you take your children home. That's just really important to us. You can't just leave them here. <laughs> because we're sent. We don't just, we worship. But worship sends us. And we recognize, while there are many people who watch online, there are many who don't. While there are many people who gather, there are many who don't. And while there are many people who know the message of the gospel, there are many who don't. I talked to a man just this last week who had never lived in America all his life, had never heard the gospel, not one single time. I told him, I shared the gospel with him. He had never heard it a single, all of his life in America, grown man, never heard it one single time. God sends us to people like that. He doesn't just say, hey, take it in, soak it in, learn, get, get, get. He says, you don't just, don't just receive my worship, but use my worship to be sent. And I want, I want you to make a difference. So you're going to gather to worship, and you're going to learn, and you're going to grow, and, you, and you're going to praise, you're going to read God's word on your own, and then you're going to go to school, and then you're going to go to work, and you're going to be in a family, and you're going to be in a neighborhood, and I want to make a difference through you right there because worship always sends. So I want us to bow together for a word of prayer for a moment. And as we bow, if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, would you give your life to Christ? This one who's worthy of worship, the God who became a man who loves you, would you give your life to Christ? Repent of your sins, the Bible says. Place your faith in Jesus who died for you and rose from the grave for you and receive him as Savior. I'm going to ask you to give your life to Christ today. Right where you are, give your life to Christ. Christian, would you say, God, I want to worship you. I don't want to just go through the motions. I don't want to just have the outside of religion. I, I don't want it just to be my feelings. I don't want it just to be what I want it to be, worshiping you. I want to worship you because you are absolutely worthy of my worship. Father, thank you for your word and the power of it and the truth of it. And this Christmas season, we recognize the great danger we have, like so many in our world, just... We go through the motions, we hear the stories, but it doesn't sink deep into our hearts. Lord, would you help us to worship you from our heart to your heart, to worship you in spirit and in truth, because you are worthy of our worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.